This is the Chapel of DBTS. Be sure to subscribe and listen to the Chapel messages weekly. And for more info, please go to dbts.edu. And now today's message. Well, good morning, men. And it's a great joy to be with you. I was able to hang out with your pastor a little bit last week at Shepherd's Conference. And uh, we, get, get, we got rained on for part of the time, but a good time of fellowship. Ran into some of your graduates as well, and you'd be proud of them. And uh, I'm just telling you, I'm looking forward to next week's Rice Lectures as well. I'm bringing several men from our church and uh, looking forward to Dr. Chow and what he's going to be speaking on. So open your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. I just started preaching into the Gospel of Luke at our church, Calvary Baptist. I'm only three or four sermons in, and still in chapter one, obviously. And I'm just, I don't know that I've ever been more excited about a series before. I, I thought you couldn't ever beat James, and then I preached through First Peter. You can't beat First Peter. And uh, Matthew, uh, yeah, right? Is that what you're teaching right now? <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I should probably talk to you after. And, and uh, But Luke is just fascinating. I mean, God used a Gentile author to pen the largest chunk of the New Testament. And a Gentile author informed and discipled by the Apostle Paul. I mean, just that alone launches you into those first four verses with great excitement of chapter one. Anyway, I'm skipping ahead in this gospel to a passage that I can't wait to come to with our church family in about three years, uh, Luke chapter 14. And it's a familiar, familiar text. I'm gonna start reading in verse 25. I'll be using the NASB. Like I think most of you guys are supposed to. I don't know. I don't know what the rule is here. Uh, verse 25. Now lar large crowds were going along with him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it will begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build, he wasn't able to finish. Or, or what king? when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good. But if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil for, or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I wonder, uh, as you guys are here learning Greek and Hebrew and theology and church history and practical theology, how many of you ever think back prior to your theological studies, prior to college, back to camp? Did you go to camp growing up? And you all probably have your own memories of camp. My, my first time at camp was at the wilds. I lived in, in Warren, and uh, 
and I went to Calvary Baptist Church of Roseville, and they took a bus down to Junior Campers, 10 years old, went down to the wilds, and, uh, and I've been connected to the wilds since then for 42 years. It's uh, still an active part of our life and, and ministry. I remember going to Camp Kobiak in the very next summer, and I, I was swimming in that, that little lake, you know, where you can catch some great bass. Pearson Johnson showed that to me. Uh, but I was swimming there as a little camper, and a kid behind or beside me started drowning. And I thought he was messing around, so I went over to mess around with him, and he pulled me under. And uh, it was all I could do to get away from him. Never forget that. I ended up working at Camp Kobiak uh, in 1986 that summer, and that's when I actually started dating Lori, who would become my wife. Uh, but while we were there as well, my cabin partner was a guy named Eugene Ratliff from Maranatha Baptist uh, Bible College. He was a big football player from Maranatha. And his nickname was, it was great. He was a huge guy with a high voice, and his name was Goober. That was his name. And, and it was just the perfect storm of a guy you couldn't help but love. Great memories at camp. I remember I have my camp memories. You have yours. But one that we probably have in common is this. At, at some point, every time at camp, someone preached on this text, Luke 14. And uh, as we sit in a chapel at a seminary this morning, I want to reflect on this same text. All right, a couple of reflections. First of all, it outlines itself, doesn't it? I mean, you can't be my disciple. It's spoken three times by our Lord. And you can, you can kind of outline your thoughts around those three cannots in verse 26, 27, and 33. Sadly, another reflection on this text is that often it's reserved for youth rooms and camps instead of settings like this, which I think in some ways, in many ways, is even more vital. Another reflection some people look at this text, this call to discipleship, as only a good start for commitment. But after we get Luke 14 understood in our minds, we can move on to deeper stuff. Another reflection, sometimes people say, well, Luke 14 is only about beating up Pharisees. After all, our Lord's speaking this in the house of a Pharisee, chapter 14, verse 1, and possibly even a ruling Pharisee. Um, and uh, I love it. The Lord goes to dinner. Jesus even goes to dinner and takes charge of everything. He's in the Pharisee's house, and then he goes and talks to uh, the Pharisee about who he should be inviting to these dinners. And he also tells the guest at this dinner that uh, don't look for the high seats, look for the low seats. I love this. Everywhere Jesus went, he was Lord. He was taking control. He was speaking his will. Is this text only to beat up on Pharisees? No. Does this text come with an expiration date for the New Testament church? No. Is this text and this kind of talk at the end of Luke 14 eclipsed by the popular gospel talk of today's evangelical movement? Is it eclipsed by gospel talk or is it energized by gospel talk? Does this text present an urgency for a room filled with students and exegetes and professors in a ministry like this. Now, let me give you one more reflection in the, in the form of a question before we get into this text. Is this call to discipleship a call to slavery or a call to freedom or are they one and the same? I like what one commentator says when he comes to Luke 14, verses 25 to the end of the chapter. He says, this is forever a sifting text. And he's right. 
It's not just sifting between Pharisees and non-Pharisees. It's not just sifting between unbelieving and believing Jews. It's sifting today between token and radical followers of Jesus. As you come here to verse 25, look at the first couple words. It says, now large crowds were going along with him. Now, again, I want to refer you back to Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, where Luke is just laying out the type of research he's done and the interviewing he's been doing with eyewitnesses. He's a man of great, great detail, not only revealed in the book of Luke, but also in the book of Acts, volume 2. And it's not a mistake that Luke is constantly noting the large crowds. Just in the Gospel of Luke, 13 times, Luke is going to identify how large the crowds were. He does it in chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, 7, 8, 9, 11, 12, and 23, several times in several of those chapters. An example would be 11:29. As the crowds were increasing, he, Jesus, began to say, this generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it except for the sign of Jonah. It's interesting. It, it, it seems from a human perspective that Jesus is constantly inviting people to himself, right? Yet every time the crowds swell, he tries to thin them out. As a matter of fact, in this, at this meal at this Pharisee's house in Luke chapter 14, uh, he even gives a story. Uh, there's a statement made in 1415 when one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this. He said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. In other words, this party is going to be big. And then Jesus gives a story that contains a rebuke embedded in it of a great party, a great celebration where invitations were set out, sent out and refused. It's interesting. It, it, it's like he, he raises excitement, appears to be bringing people to himself. The crowd comes in and then he drops a bomb and thins out the crowd. I think that's significant, and that's what's going on as we come to the end of this chapter again. McDonald says this, in this text, Jesus wooed, and then he winnowed. It's time for sifting. It's time for thinning. And so what I, the wording I want to use, and maybe it's the 11 years I had in Virginia Beach in the military context, the, words, the word I want to use is a grenade. I think Jesus lobs three grenades into the large crowds that are following him, verse 25. And it's the ones that will be standing after the smoke clears that are the, that are the true disciples of his. Those who are, are really not just talkers, not just, careful, those who are curious about him. They're the ones attached to it. And so he's going to lob three grenades in. And, and here's what I want to do. I want us to hear these grenades go off this morning. Because they're not just for then, they're for now. And I want, to I want to spend the rest of our time in this chapter, the last couple verses, not to beat you up with it like camp. All right? We're in a seminary chapel. I want to encourage you this morning. This text is going to tell you men that if you're this type of disciple by God's grace and only by his grace, you're free. This text frees you to be an unusual, which should be a normal, disciple of Jesus. You're free to move from being a resume curious theological Christian 
to being a radical cross-bearing Christian. So here come the three grenades. You ready? They're simple. You've preached this before, let alone heard it before. Let's do it again. First of all, the first grenade lands, and, and, and here's what that grenade is. You must love Jesus more than any person. More than any person. Look at verse 26. Jesus turned and said to them, verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What am I going to do with that? You've preached through this before. You've taught through it before. We know what he's not teaching. He's not going to conflict with other parts of the canon of Scripture, which we're commanded to love our family members. We're commanded to care for our parents. Um, actually, Matthew 10.37 kind of unlocks this. Uh, his account says, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And perhaps you've explained it this way as you've taught through this text. I think it's right. He's not calling us to hate. He's calling us to love less. Uh, the strong love we're supposed to have with our children, with our parents, and, and those of us who are married, ex especially with our wives, we're one flesh with that love that's so strong when compared with our commitment and love for Christ uh, should look like hate in comparison, though there's still love there. But this is the love God calls us to for Christ. I, again, I mentioned Camp Kobiak. I remember working at Kobiak, and you're just hungry as a counselor because you're running with the campers. And, uh, and you're eating camp food, and that's your energy, right? And, and we're all just going on peanut butter and jelly all week or bologna sandwiches, but we're excited because, the well, the counselors are excited because Friday's coming, and we're going to have a big roast beef dinner, right? And, uh, and at that roast beef dinner, you just have a lot of meat, a lot of potatoes, a lot of vegetables, and you just have a feast at the end of the week. And, uh, and the same thing happened every junior camp when we came to that dinner. The juniors would look at the roast beef and the potatoes and the vegetables and say, would you please pass, what, the peanut butter and jelly again? It's like, what, are you serious? Um, and they're like, I, I just don't want to eat vegetables and stuff. My mom makes me eat that at home. I love peanut butter and jelly. And I'm the, I was so fast to give them the peanut butter and jelly. It was more meat for me, right? And if I were to ask those junior campers, what, what's up with the peanut butter and jelly? They would say this to you. They would say this to me. I love peanut butter and jelly. And they do. They do. But let's say I could bring one of those campers in here this morning. And I had peanut butter and jelly here, heavy on the peanut butter, heavy on the jelly. And I'd like to toast the pieces of bread, too, put a little texture to it. And I have this thing right here on a platter. And the junior camper's tied up in the back of the room. And you cut him loose. And he starts running towards his peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And right when he gets about where Dr. Dunham is, I pull out a deep dish Little Caesars pepperoni bacon lover's pizza with stuffed crust. What's going to happen? The junior camper is going to divert his, his, uh, his path over to this pizza and just plant his face in it. All right? And let's say I lift his face up and say, wait, just a minute. You told me at camp you love peanut butter and jelly. He says, oh, I still do. I do. I really do. But I love pizza that much more. Simple illustration. But Jesus is speaking simply. You have to love me more than you love any person. Do you understand how freeing that is for you as a seminary student? I mean, think in concentric circles, out, out here being uh, the, the, the relationships and friendships in your life that are not as strong as the center of your circle, which would be your marriage or your children, your, 
your, if you're not married, it would be uh, your family. If you work on the outskirts of your relationships to even what we could call opponents, you're free from loving them like you love Jesus. As you push in towards the center to your fellow students and your professors, right down into your marriage, do you understand that loving Christ with this level of love frees you from the fear of man, from the praise of man, I like what Kent Hughes says about this particular uh, requirement. He says, Jesus yanks us from our dream world with these words. As much as we're supposed to love those closest to us and even working out from the center all the way to strangers, we're supposed to have a love for them. When we love Christ like this, we are freed, listen, to really love those people now. Because the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. What happens when you and I are loving Jesus like that? Then, uh, then what happens, in the words of Piper, is he, this love that we have with God and the love that God has for us that he shed abroad in our hearts, we bend it out and now we can really love others with that kind of love. The people in your life don't lose when you get radical with your discipleship. They win. They win. John said in 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. You must love Jesus more than any other person. And what that means is you're free. You're free. But then he says in verse 27 that you must love Jesus more than yourself. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You're familiar with this picture as well. This one is not hidden. Um, it was very well known that Rome, when they were crucifying, when they were going to crucify a criminal, if he was physically still able, he would be forced to carry at least part of his cross, maybe a beam from his cross, a beam from the actual execution instrument that would soon take his life. He had to carry that through crowded streets. You say, was that just to torture him more right before they kill him? Well, yeah, probably a little of that. But it was Rome forcing the criminal to make this statement on the crowded streets. Rome is right, and I'm wrong. Left to myself, I'm bad, and it's cost me my life. Rome is right. And so Jesus takes that language and says, if you don't carry your own cross and come after me, well, you can't be my disciple. As Dr. Davey used to remind us all the time in Virginia Beach and Chapel, this is Jesus inviting us to join him on his death march. And you say, wow, I have to love Jesus more than myself? Yeah, you know what that means? That means that you'll be free from some chains as a seminarian. Chains like worrying about your reputation. You ever notice you can get in a com in a, into a competitive mindset as a seminarian? And you can compete for a, an academic reputation, an exegetical reputation, an um, outside-the-box reputation as far as a thinker. You're free from that. You're also free on the other end of the extreme as a seminarian from the gravity of always looking for the easiest path through seminary. You're free. Why? Because you're dead. And what about your future plans and fixating on what's next? Well, this frees you right now to, to be all here in the present. 
God's going to take care of the next. You've died. Paul puts it this way in Colossians 3, 3 and 4. You've died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ who is your life is revealed, then you'll also be revealed with him in glory. You're dead. You're dead. Or he says in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. You must love Jesus more than you love yourself. You say, well, that means my death. Yep, and you know what that means? You're free. You're free. But there's one more grenade going in. Can you tell after each of the grenades hits the crowd that it's starting to thin out in our mind's eye? Two have already hit. A lot of the a lot of those who were standing declaring their allegiance to him are gone. And that's not good enough, though, for our Lord. He lobs another one in there. And he does this in verse 33 with these words. You must love Jesus more than anything. Look at verse 33. So then none of you can be my disciples who does not give up all his own possessions. Anything in his life. There's no vice grip on anything this life can give to you. Any treasure, any, any source of, of temporary contentment and joy, the grip is released. Now, in 1988, the Olympics got my attention. Okay, I was, I was a senior in college. And, uh, and if the 1988 Olympics were in South Korea. I don't know if you remember that. Uh, maybe some of you weren't alive. I don't know where I am in life right now. But I was excited about it because the host country gets to help, I, from what I understand, pick some of the trial events that aren't normally Olympic events, but we're going to do a trial. Just like um, point, if those of you in martial arts, point uh, kumite, karate sparring, is going to be in Japan this next Olympics. I'm pretty excited about that. It's going to be a lot different and a lot more disciplined than taekwondo. But that's just my opinion. Um, but I was into karate in Okinawan karate growing up. But uh, in 1988, though, in South Korea, they were going to try out taekwondo and see if it stuck. And, and I was excited about that. At least some martial arts gotten in there except besides just judo, where men hug each other. Okay, uh, they're going to hit. They're going to hit. And... Uh, and I was in college, so I, I couldn't watch it. I was busy studying and all that. But I, uh, a friend of mine had a TV in the dorm. He was a dorm counselor. This is way back before you know, all those days. And he came in, and he says, you're not going to believe what I just watched. I was what? He says, I watched this taekwondo competition in South Korea. I said, what happened? He says, well, we had a, we had a teenager there representing America, one of the members of our team. And I forget how old he was. And, but it was, this, it was this kid that was good and fast. And don't forget who the host country is. It's South Korea. Taekwondo is in South Korea what basketball and stuff like football is to America. That's their sport. They should own everything. And we sent a teenager over there that was giving him fits. And he kept winning his fights. And he made it to the final round, I guess, for the gold and silver or something like that, and, and for his division. And he was taking on a, a hero from South Korea who made it to that fight. So it's our teenager getting in there with this, this guy that everyone has assumed is going to win. This kid, from what I'm told, had even, our, our kid, the teenager, had shaved his head and had made it look like a gold medal on his head with a flat top or something. I mean, he was so focused. I didn't see the fight, but the guy reported it to me. I said, what happened? He says, our guy destroyed the other guy. He was all over him. He was even, 
I mean, there were some times that he kicked this guy so hard that he landed outside of the bounds. And our teenager just ate him up. But at the end, um, the other guy was declared the winner on points. And, and uh, even the South Korean um, crowd booed that or explain, expressed their displeasure. Um, and what's interesting, I was told after the fight, is that our guy was pretty disappointing. And he sat down right in the middle of the, of the ring. And finally, um, a news reporter went up to him and said, you did a great job. We're proud of you. You took on this national hero. And obviously, you won. The crowd thinks you won. And the kid just looked up and said, well, I just I didn't come here for second. Didn't come here for second. See, that guy, like any Olympian, had given up years, had given up diet, had given up freedom to train for that fight, for that moment. There was a focus where he said, you know what, I, I, I want this honor of a gold medal more than I want anything else in my life. And you know what, that's the spirit of what Jesus is saying here. You have to love Jesus more than anything. It's the Philippians 3, 7 through 11 kind of love and commitment. You say, well, how is that supposed to encourage me in seminary? Understand that if you love Jesus more than anything, you're free. You're free from some seminary chains. Chains like finding your worth in a degree, though it's an important pursuit you're involved in. It's not your identity. Uh, You're free from fixating on a ministerial resume in the past, present, or future. You're freed from trying to win the respect and envy of a culture. You're free from setting up a a competitive mindset for the ministry. You're free from a strange force that's around in conservative evangelicalism now of of wanting to have a franchise-like success in your ministry so that you can reproduce you and, 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 and have a, your own unique franchise network of ministry. You, you know what? That there's a lot of pressure to do that these days, and we're seeing a lot of those crumble around us in the last few weeks. But you're free from that. You're free. A very simple outline. Love Jesus more than any person, more than myself, and more than anything. And I must confess that really these aren't three separate grenades There are three facets of one grenade. I mean, think about it. At the end of that first grenade, or the first explosion, you must love Jesus more than anyone. And then he says, and and even more than yourself, it's said at the end of that verse. Well, if you love Jesus more than even yourself, what that means is there's nothing left of you but to die. That's to take your cross up. And if you're dead, your hand releases all earthly possessions. It's one grenade Listen, this grenade devastates, but it frees. It frees. You are free to love Jesus more than any person, more than yourself, and more than anything, even in seminary. Listen to John Calvin. John Calvin said, I gave up all for Christ. And what have I found? I have found everything in Christ. Or J.C. Ryle put it this way, the man who does well for himself is the man who gives up everything for Christ's sake. He makes the best of bargains. He carries the cross for a few years in this world and in the world to come has everlasting life. 
He obtains the best of possessions. He carries his riches beyond the grave. He is rich in grace here, and he is rich in glory hereafter. And best of all, what obtains by faith in Christ, he never loses, end quote. He's right. He's right. And, and if, if, if those three simple points weren't clear enough, Jesus punctuates it with three warnings in the, in, the, in the form of pictures. In verses 28 through 30, he talks about not finishing a tower. In verses 31 to 32, he talks about not facing an enemy. And then in verses 34 and 35, he does a third picture, and that's not maintaining a distinctness. He talks about salt. You know those, those stories. I agree with Leon Morris when he looks at these pictures. He says um, all three of these pictures warn about four realities. They all have great potential. They all have a great cost. All of them fail, and all of them have a remaining impact because of their failure. Leon Morris also says we need to count the cost of following but we also need to count the cost of not following, is what he's saying. Well, those are the grenades. And this ain't camp, this is seminary. But I'm curious, who's left standing? Who's left standing? Look at chapter 15. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Who wasn't left standing? Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Hmm. It's those that are most aware of their need for grace. They draw close to him. And those who have no idea that they need grace, they're grumbling. I think of Paul in 1 Timothy 1.12. <clears throat> I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, that I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord is more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It's a trustworthy statement deserving all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. You know, there was a time when Paul would have ended up in verse 2 of chapter 15, grumbling. But God in his mercy, Paul will describe it in his epistles as the same one that can say light appeared, is the one that shone in our hearts the, the beauty and the glory of the gospel. He gave us light. And Paul, someone who would have been in verse 2 of chapter 15, had God wake him up and give him life, and Paul couldn't run fast enough away from the rest of the crowd into a high commitment of discipleship to Jesus. He was overwhelmed by grace. G. Campbell Morgan, even back in his day, looked at this text and said, our church needs this. Quote, if the church of God could only discover this lesson today, what sifting there would be in our church roles how soon we should be cleansed from our unholy boasting that we have a large membership, end quote. I just told our church this past Sunday, I'm so excited to continue on in the Gospel of Luke. I said, why? 
because, well, things we've already talked about this morning. I'm excited about the author himself. I'm excited about who discipled Luke. I'm, deci- I'm excited about his precision. But then I told the church family, and I'm praying specifically, number one, that all of us would be overwhelmed with the glory of the Son of Man that we're going to see in the Gospel of Luke. Okay, Every week, including the preaching. But number two, there are many of you in this church, Calvary Baptist Church of Ypsilanti, who've been members here for years, you're not saved. You are not regenerated. You just don't know it yet. And I'm praying that Luke's going to show that to you. Thin the ranks. It's a sifting text. Jesus woos and then he winnows. We had a, we had a seminary student in Virginia Beach who wrote the following words. It's Phil Hall. Do I love ministry or do I love the idea of ministry? Do I love my community or do I love the idea of community? Do I love missions or merely do I love the idea of missions? Do I love my church or do I merely love the idea of my church? It's a good quote. I'm going to add one to to Phil's words. Do I love Jesus? Or do I merely love the idea of loving Jesus? Now listen to this. The gospel kills you and thus frees you to be this type of a disciple. A disciple that's fueled by other worldly affections for your loving Lord Jesus Christ. And just one more comment. You know what? When it comes to men like us, we don't even know how to die well, do we? We need grace to die well to ourselves. And that's why we treasure the gospel and what Paul said in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Men, in the midst of all of your study, of all of the necessary disciplines you'll need for decades of ministry in the pulpit, Do not miss the simple message that you've heard a hundred times at camp. As a matter of fact, the more you push into life and ministry, the more you must run back to this check in your own life. And then cry out for grace. Lord, help me to die like this because I want to be free. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for your kindness to us and your presence. Thank you for your love for the church. Thank you for your work of grace and conforming us to your image. And thank you for this high, even impossible call to discipleship. We feel the fight of loving you more than any person, more than ourselves, and more than anything. But it's right. Both the call and the impossibility to us outside of your grace. Help us to pull even closer to you, Lord, in our affections because you are drawing us to yourself in our affections by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the DBTS Chapel Hour. DBTS is a ministry of Intercity Baptist Church. To find out more about Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, please go to dbts.edu.